Greetings, YouTubers, thrill-seekers, small gerbils, and undocumented Republicans. It's Mr. Palumbo. Today on the mailbag, we have an email from Breadman. And he writes, Who does the military protect? The government or the people? Who is in control of the government, the military or we the people? Just a few questions you might be able to clear up in this time of confusion. And then he writes in, uh, in quotations, think military oath of office. Thank you very much, Breadman. Well, Breadman, thank you very much for uh, writing. I really appreciate all of you who take the time to uh, contribute to the mailbags and to contribute to Professor Liberty. So thank you very much, Breadman. I'm assuming you make bread. I hope it's good. And just a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to contribute to the mailbag, with your history questions or your economic questions or your government questions, please email ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. Okay, so let's, uh, to give you the short answer of who controls the military, the government or the people, well, technically, it's the government. All governments have militaries to, um, to carry out their you know, foreign policy, war, military, war is a form of foreign policy. Uh, the military is made up of people of any given nation, and they're either conscripted, which means they're forced or compelled to serve, or they volunteer to serve. Our country has had a tradition of both. Ever since Vietnam, our country has been 100% volunteer-based. Regarding uh, who the military protects, the government or the people, again, the answer would be both. But I'm sensing that Breadman is not coming out and saying this, but he's, uh, he's trying, he seems to be implying that there is, uh, what happens if the government and the people are at odds with each other? What, is, what role does the government play in that regard? Who or what is the government bound to? And I think that's why he mentions the oath, the military oath. So in doing some research, I found this excerpt from a military uh, pamphlet, an Air Force pamphlet, explaining the military oath of office. And it reads, Military oaths have been around since ancient Roman times. Many pledged loyalty to a specific general officer or a specific campaign. Oaths existed in the United States since the early colonial days. In the 1600s, the Pilgrims established the Mayflower Compact, which served as an oath and a covenant and a constitution. Two years after the Constitution of the United States of America was signed, the first bill in which the first session of Congress passed into law, it was called the Statue 1, Chapter 1, and it was titled, An Act to Regulate the Time and Manner of Administering Certain Oaths, which established the oath required by civil and military officers to support the Constitution. Now, for those of you who might not know, there is two different oaths. There is a oath for the commissioned officer, and there's an oath for the enlisted person. But according to this pamphlet, uh, they used to be the same oath. The pamphlet goes on to say that in 1862, the officer oath became separated from the enlisted oath, and the word defended was added to verify their loyalty during the Civil War.
So let's take a look at both oaths. And uh, first thing we need to know, like I said, that there's, they're different. They're slightly different. So let's read the military oath for enlisted personnel. I, and then you say your name, do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulations and to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. Okay, so does anything stand out at you as you first heard this oath? Anything kind of grasp your attention, if you will? Um, so the first oath of allegiance, or the first, you know, pledge of allegiance is to the Constitution, right? But then the enlisted person also has... Uh, to swear that he will obey the leaders that are above him. And one of those is the President of the United States, which we all know, under the Constitution, serves as the Commander-in-Chief. I would like to add, though, it says here at the very end that I will obey the orders of the President and the officers, blah, 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 according to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So, uh, there is a code of military justice. There are laws, military laws, that, that say you do not have to obey an unjust order. Now, that, that threshold to prove can get you into a lot of trouble, but there are uh, ways out. There are things that you aren't bound to obey. Okay, so now let's read the officer oath. I... That's your name, have been appointed an officer in the blank military branch of the United States. As indicated above, in the grade of blank, do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which I'm about to enter, so help me God. So I hope you can notice that even though the two oaths are different, they both pledge allegiance to the Constitution first and foremost. Now the enlisted, like we said earlier, he must swear to obey the orders of the president, who is the commander-in-chief, as well as the officers are placed above him. The officer oath, however, has no such requirement. A commissioned officer only swears to defend the Constitution, not the head of a government or a person. In that Air Force pamphlet we were looking at earlier, it said, you are not swearing to support the president, the country, the flag, or particular service, but rather the Constitution, which symbolizes all of these things. So in other words, the commission officer swears to uphold the Constitution, not blindly follow a president. So going back to Breadman's question, who does the military serve? Well, in theory, it would serve the people, right? It would serve the Constitution. But historically, that question can only be answered based on the makeup of the military in question. Well, what do I mean? Well, who makes up the military? 
Is it the middle class? Are they volunteers? Are they conscripted? Are they connected to the community that they pledge to protect? All of these elements will tell us whether a military will serve the government or the people if the two become at odds with each other. Hopefully I can get I can explain this and articulate this in a way that you guys will understand. But America's history, America's military history is very much tied or is very much in line with Republican principles. Okay, that's Republican little r, not the Republican Party. And I'll get into what these Republican principles are in a minute. But up until Vietnam, we had a very uh, Republican, idealistic form of the military. Before Vietnam, the U.S. military was very small. It was made up of an officer corps and a few enlisted. And every time war broke out, citizens would fill the ranks through conscription. And once the war was over, the military would shrink again. We did this because there was a prevailing belief that a large standing army was a threat to republics and to free society. This goes back to the early Roman Empire, where the farmer would put down his plow, join the ranks of the army, put down any threat, or like we said earlier, pledge to, to fulfill a campaign or to carry out a campaign. And then once the conflict was over and the Roman Republic was saved, he would return back to his plow again. When did Rome become an empire? Well, they had a professional military. The soldiers were not tied to the land. They had their allegiance in the generals, a la Julius Caesar. And there you go. Julius Caesar marched on to Rome and became emperor. And so America has, for most of our history, so we really did a pretty good job. For most of our history, we tried to keep those Republican ideals regarding our military. But, you know, after Vietnam, we got rid of conscription, but we kept a consistently uh, high force, military force, a professional military force. And some of this is because of the Cold War that we can't ignore, right? As the Cold War kept growing, we needed a force. As the arms race kept going with the Soviets, we needed a military force that could match that. And obviously I meant high numbers as far as troops, not high as far as they've been smoking the stuff. Anyway, <laughs> now I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, and I hope I answered Breadman's question, but there's a couple things about this topic that I could branch off. Uh, here's something interesting and frankly I think is a little disturbing. Only about 1% of the population has served in the military today. So 1% of the U.S. population has served in the military today. Just for a little uh, comparing, during World War II, that percentage was as high as 12%. Since the military is completely voluntary, people can go about their entire lives disconnected to whatever disastrous foreign policy our government has our military involved in. I've got students who were born, raised, and now are in college or in the workforce while the entire war in Afghanistan continues. They don't know anybody that's serving over there. They don't know why we're over there. It does not affect them at all what our military is doing overseas. Meanwhile, we have a small group of folks taking up the mantle of arms, 
and service to the country. I tend to think if more people were involved, there would be a greater connection to the country as a whole, and maybe there would be more involvement and scrutiny of our leaders who are sending our military over to police the world or having us engaged in things that have nothing to do with national security. So where does this leave us with Breadman's question? Technically, the military officers and to some degree the enlisted swear allegiance to the Constitution, not the government. But in the end, it's going to come down to the character of the people serving. In my experience, the vast majority of military folks are American-loving patriots. However, that's not everyone. The military is a great microcosm of the country. If you want to see America, join the military. Everyone's the same. Black, white, Asian, doesn't matter. Christians, atheists, middle class, poor, you're all starting from the bottom and you all have to work together as a team. At least that was my experience when I was in the Navy. But there are rumors and there are stories about uh, when President Obama canning up to 200 officers whom he thought were disloyal to him or that were critical of his policies. So that's 200 officers that he, uh, he, he fired, right, for lack of a better term. And now they're talking about today, I just heard on the news on the way home, they're talking about looking for, quote, extremists within the ranks, unquote. Well, what's an extremist? Someone who holds conservative views, question mark? You can already see the fruit of this because I remember when President Trump was talking about sending troops into cities or sending troops into D.C. to protect it from the riots. Many generals came out and said, we're not, we're not going to obey that order, Mr. President. We're not going to occupy uh, a U.S. city. But I haven't heard of any general coming out against Biden's order of National Guard occupying the Capitol almost indefinitely. Where are all the generals now? It seems that the military is changing, and it seems like the left is using the military as its little social experiment guinea pig. With all this focus on social issues and over-concerns about diversity, things like making sure a pregnant woman can fly in a jet, instead of worrying about that, why don't they put their efforts into putting the best fighting force possible in the sky, on the land, and on the sea? It seems that leftist ideology is creeping into the military. And what does that mean? What, what is the military going to look like in five or ten years? Will it continue to be a state-of-the-art fighting force? Will the military uphold the oaths to protect and defend against all enemies, foreign and maybe domestic? I guess we'll have to see. Hopefully our better angels will prevail and we will never have to find out. I will say historically... You can look throughout history when an army, when a standing army is not tied to the people or to the land or to the nation. It is nothing more than a ripe fruit ready to be plucked by any tyrant who wishes to take power. Here at Professor Liberty, we seek to educate, inspire, and restore. If you like this podcast, please give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. 
If you'd like to contribute to the mailbag or if you have any questions, comments, and concerns, please email me at professorliberty1776 at gmail.com. If you're a homeschooler or if you're interested in looking at some lessons that I have put together, please go to teacherspayteachers.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, go throughout the land and proclaim liberty. Liberty.